You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. All of us sort of became these other characters after the soft bulletin. That music just, I mean, we could just see how much it was affecting people. I think previous to that, we would have been embarrassed that people are like crying to your songs. You know, it just would have confused us. But when that started to happen, you know, it kind of made us think maybe we were able to sing about something that a lot of people weren't able to sing about. And none of us really knew the depth of Stephen's abilities. That's Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips, known for their psychedelic, emotional bubblegum rock, talking about longtime bandmate Stephen Droz. How do a band of outsiders from Oklahoma that seem to indulge in every flight of fancy still manage a 40-year career to be envied? Their latest album, American Head, has already been hailed as another career high in the mold of two of their most commercially successful albums, The Soft Bulletin and Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. It's like that crazy plastic bubble that Wayne Coyne uses to crowd surf over his audience. It's now a highlight at their live shows. But who knew it would be a viable solution for them to perform with an audience and still observe social distance? Well, welcome to Season 2. We kick off with the fantastic Mr. Wayne Coyne. He became a father recently, and in this episode, tells us how they found themselves in a refreshed zone of songwriting for this album, and why, despite the band's trippy reputation and songs littered with drug references... The drugs have never really worked for him. So tell me now. So tell me now how did it happen after the lava flows? Maybe no This is Wayne Coyne from the band The Flaming Lips. Our record that we have out right now is called American Head. As we're still working from home, 
We apologize for the less than perfect audio in this first bit and a pet interruption later. Also note that there'll be drug references in this episode. Last time we spoke, you were prepping for your bubble concerts and now you've done two of them in Oklahoma. And I saw Baby Bloom even got to attend. How do you feel about having accomplished something that just seemed fantastical not too long ago? And I see on social media that obviously there are haters who just conflate what you're trying to do, which is have a concert in the safest way possible with kind of being foolish and even bothering to attempt a large gathering during a pandemic? Well, I mean, I feel like you're not doing anything if you don't have at least a few haters. So many people are saying cool things and and loving it and saying encouraging things. But I like what you said. You know, it's like it starts off as this, it's just like a fantastical dream. You can't quite really think it's going to really happen. You do work out the detail. You know, you just have to get lucky that you can figure out these things and make progress little by little. Mm -hmm. Um, So American Head, it's, you know, it's like a psychedelic bomb in these days and you can really lose yourself in it. But I'd like to go back a little. What was it like for you growing up in Oklahoma in the 70s, the fifth of six children? I've read a couple of things and I imagine you had a boisterous but loving home and you guys played football in your backyard. It's like idyllic. Yeah, just absolutely the luckiest set of circumstances to be in this giant family. And so I, I always say this thing, I wasn't really raised by by my parents. I was raised by my parents and my older brothers and all that. So by the time I came along, they're all eight years older, five years older. So I think for a young boy to want to be like your older brothers and your older brother's friends, that's just part of, of that dynamic. But I remember being in first grade and my older brothers liked to draw comic books and we would just sit around drawing all the time. And even though I think about it now, it's only like four or five years old. I I don't think we were competitive. I just think it's just the nature of, of boys being around each other and not knowing how difficult or how easy any of this should be. So my oldest brother could draw quite well and we all wanted to be like him. So we all tried to draw as good as we could. And I remember that there would be a time when I would ask him to help me. I mean, he's a teenager and I'm just a little kid. And I'm saying, can you help me draw this? I think about it really all the time. Mm. There's this one particular drawing that I, I wanted him to help me. And he was like, I, I'm not going to help you. You can do it. Just do it without me. And I really resented it. I remember being in first grade thinking, well, everybody should be able to draw, but no one could draw except for me. <laughs> and I remember I could draw better than him, even being in the first grade. But I owe it to him because he made me. It's like, you have to figure this out for yourself. It wasn't like art to us. It was more like just something that I really liked to do. We didn't grow up in an arty household. It was just a normal workaday kind of family. The idea of being like a painter, uh, being a, you know, a singer, being a, a guitar player, being a songwriter. You know, for me, I didn't have anybody that was telling me you were doing it wrong. I think that's, that's the part that probably really saved me. As I do all these things now, I do oftentimes run into very rational people and they just think I'm crazy. So you really have to know how to navigate the resistance and people saying no to you a lot. But when I was very young like that, everybody that I was around would just love that I was painting and drawing and playing guitar. And no one said, 
no, or that's stupid, or you don't know what you're doing. That didn't come till much later, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that's this idyllic environment that you, the brief introduction that, that you said there. And, and I realize that now, and I see that even in my own life now, you know, with our own uh, little boy and how like, it's hard to get around someone that thinks they know better than you telling you no. I mean, it's very hard to navigate that. We're, we're very careful just to be like, you know, yeah, let's, let's try these things. I mean, he's only 19 months old. So I think we, you know, we're, we're lucky. He's such a nice little creature at the moment. But I think that's probably the environment that made me so much believe in the power of creativity and believe in the power of love, you know, doing things with love as opposed to doing them because I'm better than you, or I'm more talented than you, or I'm smarter than you. And I think that comes from my brothers and my parents. When you're so young, I think the idea of death, you know, you don't quite have it formed in your mind, but my older brothers had some friends who, as they got into junior high and high school, were in like motorcycle accidents. And I would have known them. They would have come to our house and these, these three or four guys, they ended up dying from their injuries, you know, and some of them didn't die right away. You know, some of them would be really messed up. And then a week later, you know, they would have died. And so it would be this traumatic time because it's a person that we all knew. Mm-hmm. And I remember one night, yeah, my parents, rarely did they ever go anywhere. But I remember the one night they went out with this other couple. And I never liked the other couple. They always seem like they're kind of drunk and loudmouths or whatever. And then I found out later, my mother didn't like them either. <laughs> but they went out with them and they were supposed to come home I, I think I remember they're supposed to come home at like something like 10 o'clock, you know, and I was starting to worry when the 10 o'clock came and I'm like, well, where are they? And, you know, then 12 o'clock came and I'm, I'm probably just six or seven years old. I'm pretty young to be so worried. I remember my older brother saying, don't worry about it, man. They'll, they'll come home. Who cares? But I, I remember sitting, we had these big windows at the front of our house and just literally sitting by the window, waiting for them to pull back up in the car and starting to have to think about, well, what if they're dead? You know, what if they never come back home? When did you become cognizant of this thing called music and how transformative it could be? In our household, you know, we just played records and there wasn't very many things on TV back then. And I remember when this group played at church, they had white suits on, they had real drums and electric guitars. And this church. I mean, it's not that remarkable. It's all stone and concrete and everything was so reflective in there. And I remember the drums being so bright and so loud. And it was the greatest church you could ever have gone to when this band was playing. I couldn't believe I was hearing a real band. I have no idea if they were good, if they were horrible. To me, it was just so exciting to really see real people playing real instruments and how great and how loud and how bright and everything it was. And so, you know, we'd listen to the Beatles. And of course, you see the Beatles and Elvis Presley and popular yeah. people on TV. But there was no one until then that I'd actually seen playing a real instrument. And then after that, I think we all became a little bit more obsessed. You know, more of my older brother's friends would start to be drummers and guitar players and people would be jamming in their bedrooms. And, you know, by the time I'm 15 or 16, there's lots of people around that are playing real instruments and loud wah-wah pedals and all that stuff. But being like seven or eight years old back when that happened, I, I think it excited me more than it did everybody else. How old were you when you started playing a musical instrument? I think I was probably 14 or 15. My older sister 
had a guitar. My older brothers knew guys that would come over and, and we would just sit around and they would play Stairway to Heaven and Neil Young songs. I guess I just thought, oh, this is cool. It's it, it's easy or whatever, you know. And And some of it, for me in the beginning, was easy. But I quickly plateaued. I don't really understand music. Still don't really understand it now which I think maybe has kind of been a good luck for me because I don't really know what key a song is in or what chords are supposed to go together. And oftentimes, I mean, luckily, I'm, I'm working now with Stephen and Dave Fridman and lots of people that are giving me encouragement to do the cool, creative things and then helping me to change it if it's too awkward or just not making any sense. So, you know, I think that combination, is, it really works well. And so part of me is glad that I don't really know what the rules of music are. There's lots of rules in music once you start, you know, mathematically putting it all together, which, you know, I'm 60. I, I doubt I'm going to start to do it now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think last time you told me the story about transformative music was the first time the Beatles were on TV. Yeah, I remember we were at the grocery store and my older brothers were like, we got to get home to see the Ed Sullivan show. And I remember driving down the street. I, I can still see it in my mind. Driving at dark, you know, the street runs right into the house. And I remember going in there and... Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! And that would have just been the beginning of the Beatles being in my life forever after that. To us, they were absolutely exotic. They didn't sound like anybody that we knew. They didn't talk like anybody that we knew. They're, the things that they sang about, they were just so optimistic and they would sing about love. You know, all these things that you can't, you just can't really talk about those things. You know, there's just some stubborn manliness that doesn't allow you to say those things. And the Beatles would give you this format and you could sing all you need is love and you would just be the only time you'd ever hear the word love, you know, would be in songs and stuff. And to be so young, they didn't just go away a year or two later. They mm. kept making great music and, and really saying great things. And then, you know, when John Lennon was killed, that sort of sets him into the realm of, you know, like a Jesus Christ or a, a Santa Claus or a mythological person. And all that's still happening when I was, I'm young still. You know, so yeah, a lot, lot of things absolutely seared into my, just the core of what I like about being a creative person. This sense of play and freedom to create land them an unlikely hit in 1993. In the aftermath of Kurt Cobain's suicide, grunge would go into decline and a wave of quirky songs would emerge. The Flaming Lips were formed in 1983 with Wayne's brother, Mark Coyne, as the lead singer. When he left two years later, Wayne stepped up to the plate. Over the decades, members have come and gone, but at its core are Wayne, Stephen, and Michael Ivins, with their longtime producer in New York, Dave Fridman. The band had already released five albums when She Don't Use Jelly from Transmissions from a Satellite Heart became an alternative rock hit. I think that little bit of success, and luckily it was little enough that it didn't just come in and utterly change our lives. You know, it changed it 
in a good way. It, we weren't like millionaires the next day. It wasn't overwhelming change. So in that way, it was the best thing ever, you know, that it could just be a little bit of success. And you get a little bit of insight of how things work and what people think of you. I mean, no, that is a, it's, you know, it's a strange world when suddenly people that you don't know, you know, come up to you at the shopping mall and they, they love your, your music. And, and I think in the beginning, that's just, you know, you kind of resent that in a way. It's kind of like, well, you don't really even know me and all that. And in time, we really did learn a lot about how lucky we are that people like our music and that it, it reaches people and the type of people that it reaches. Being around a lot of other groups who despised their fans, <laughs> you know, and they would play to them every night and just be like, I hate these people. And, you know, we've never had that. We absolutely love our audience. They would push the limits of their audience with the parking lot experiments, where they recorded their music onto scores of cassettes, then got people to play them over their car stereos, strategically placed in an underground car park. This would lead to Zyreka, a truly experimental album conceived as four individual CDs that had to be played separately in four different stereo players at the same time. It sealed their status as a cult band, but their audience was about to multiply tenfold with their next album, The Soft Bulletin. A lot of its ideas came from the same period as Zyreka, a cult favorite but commercial non-starter. The Flaming Lips were evolving and coming into their own as artists. The Soft Bulletin was written during a difficult and emotional time. Stephen's substance abuse was manifesting in troubling ways. Michael was involved in a serious car accident. In true form, Wayne wrote the tender Spider Bite song about how he would feel if he lost either of them. Wayne was also dealing with the heartbreak of his own father dying. success of the soft bulletin and crossover definitively into the mainstream. On the surface, a simple tale about a Japanese girl, karate chops and all, overcoming evil robots. On a deeper level, it was a profound reflection on mortality and loss. Yeah. 
She's a black belt in karate Working for the city She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that Anybody liked the Soft Bulletin, you know, the previous record. Mm-hmm. And we were just dead set on like, well, we're just making another weird record and it'll be back to normal. And then we make this record and it's it's just, I hear it now and I go, how the fuck did we make this record? It's such a perfect, I mean, it's such a great sounding record. You know, you're struggling to find your way or your voice or your character or whatever. And I think that's always happening. The way I'm singing, what I'm singing about is the person I'm going to be three or four years from now. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's I'm singing about a future me or something. Like if mm-hmm. I say this now, I can figure out what it means and then I can live that as opposed to it just being a song. It's like your subconscious speaks to you before the rest of you figures it out. Yeah, or it comes out of your subconscious and then you can you can experience it as opposed to being trapped in there. Mm. It's just swimming around, you know, it comes out of you and then you go, Oh wow, that's, Hey, that's cool. Or that's stupid or, or whatever it is. And I think this character characters, I guess all of us sort of became these other characters after the soft bulletin, mm. you know, that, that music just, I mean, we could just see how much it was affecting people. And I think previous to that, we would have been embarrassed that, People are like crying to your songs. You know, it just would have confused us. But when that started to happen, it kind of made us think maybe we were able to sing about something that a lot of people weren't able to sing about. And none of us really knew the depth of Stephen's abilities. Previous to making the soft Bolton, we could have all thought, oh, we're playing this cool rock music. He's very musical. But mm-hmm. once we made the soft Bolton, I mean, it was just next level, so advanced, so expressive and i think we just said well if we have the ability to do that let's let's really make it that because and those things just really really affected people and you know we would have people after the shows literally telling us stories about their brothers uh, dying of cancer and their mm-hmm. their mothers dying and things like that and not and it not being bad it being like you know that this was hopeful and it was optimistic mm-hmm. and all that and so I think in that way, it, it kind of changed us. And so I mm. think by the time we were making the Yoshimi record, we felt like, hey, maybe we can do that too. Even though this is, you know, it's a, it's a wacko kind of sci-fi religious concept. Maybe we can have that in there. And uh, yeah. And I, I think, again, like with, with Stephen and Dave Fridman 
everything about it, everybody cared about. So, mm. but I mean, those kind of records, we wouldn't want to make them all the time. They're just so intense. You know, it's almost like you have to forget about everything in your life and just think about that. And so we wouldn't want to do that all the time, but I'm, I'm glad we have the ability to do that. And I, yeah. I think the American Head album, it has that vibe about it where we really got lucky and six or seven of those tracks just really started to shine the way. American Head, their 17th studio album, was inspired by Running Down a Dream, a Tom Petty documentary that Wayne revisited after Petty's death in 2017. It places Petty and his band, then called Muttcrutch, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the 70s, when Wayne himself was coming of age and eager to be a rock star. With that as its starting point, American Head began to take on the sepia tones of nostalgia, of their collective rememberings and regrets. For this particular album, I understand the jumping off point was Tom Petty and the documentary, but also has being a new father, has that sort of coloured the way this album has come along? I guess you've always been reflective about mortality and like the human spirit in all your music. That's always been a key theme. Well, you know, probably when it was happening, you know, some of these songs would go back Two or three years. So, you know, a a bit before we have our little baby. And, you know, we're still making lots of music. You know, we were doing the Deep Lips record. We were still doing the King's Mouth record. But I think we really do work best in that way. We're always doing stuff. But then there is an album that we're kind of working on that's going to take three or four years. And that would be the American Head album. We would have little bits of these songs. I remember the song, My Religion Is You. We had that one a long, long time ago. Dinosaurs on the Mountain, we had that long, long time ago. And Mother, I've Taken LSD. So we had these in a batch that we kept thinking like, "Ah, let's see if we can keep circling in that and see if we can get a batch that's going to work like that. And so, and then I think Stephen and I do cycle through 
sometimes being songwriters that we love being songwriters and other times being very bored with our own <laughs> abilities of like so you know i think we started to come back into a refreshed zone of songwriting he was getting some really special sad melodies and i took a, a few of those and we would turn those into you know more flushed out songs and a few of those went really well and then i had some really clunky little dorky special moment songs that he's able to take and turn into just more expressive, more musical stuff. So both of those would would start to work. And then we took it, some of the stuff up to Dave Fridman and said, well, I, we're thinking maybe we're going to start to go with this as being another record. And I could tell he was just really falling in love with it. When you can get Stephen and Dave Fridman all saying, this is the direction we want to go in, that's always exhilarating, you know, because I don't know what we're doing. I don't think Stephen knows what we're doing or Dave Fridman, but we know what we don't want to do. So, you know, it's a very much feeling around in the dark. But once we would get six or seven of these things, that would really charge us to be like, let's come on, we got it. We got to do this. So, you know, the last four or five songs, which would end up being like God and the Policeman and the first song on the album, the Will You Return When You Come Down. Yeah. I mean, those you feel like you're, you're already in. You know, oh, the, there's your dog. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, you know, those would be once you feel like you're really in this zone of like you, you kind of know what your sound is. That's just sheer, sheer dumb luck that you get yeah. to keep working and keep trying and keep, you know, people that are so so good at what they're doing and they're really focused on making it good becoming a father it, it's probably changed me and i probably the longer i'm a father the more i'll know it the beginning of this album you know he's really just a little he's just a little little baby now he's becoming more he's a toddler and he's starting to walk and talk and do stuff so i'm sure it has changed me and maybe that's just part of the magic you know, a lot of writing music, you really can't be thinking about it too much. You know, it really just kind of has to flow through you and you can't get too caught up in like, oh, it should be this or should be that. You know, a lot of the really great things that happen, especially with our music, Stephen and I will oftentimes just be sitting there and like, man, that's that's just amazing. How is How did that happen? I'll be like, I have no idea. And a lot of it, I think there are things that are happening to you that you're going to sing about, but I don't think you know that when it's happening. I think they've happened to you and you forgot about them or they've become part of your personality or they're into your subconscious. So when you're going to sing about them, you don't really know you're singing about them. And that's where working on an album like this, we would catch ourselves thinking like, oh man, this really feels like we're singing about this other time in our life, this other innocence. You just hope to catch it. I mean, I think everybody is, as a lot of times, is working the same way. It's just I'm very lucky that, you know, I'm doing stuff and Stephen is going to catch it for me because I wouldn't really know if it's good or bad. Stephen is working on stuff and I'm going to catch it while he's doing it. And then we have Dave Fridman, who's catching both of us saying, mm -hmm. oh, do that. Everybody working towards the same thing. So, yeah, I think I think it's a lot of just, man, it's like three people under hypnosis at the same time.
Chen when you come down. I think it's one of the songs that I remember after I walk away. The melody's still in my head a lot. It's so gorgeous, Stephen's vocals on it, because for the longest time, I thought maybe it was Casey Musgraves. Well, he would, um, he would take that as a great, great compliment. That's a wonderful thing to say. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, and also then it sort of foregrounds the stories that are, you're about to tell on this album. So it's a really good sort of prologue. But how did those words, flower gun, now you're on the run, flower head, now all your friends are dead, that just grabs you straight uh, away. Right. Well, well Stephen had this bit, this uh, will you return when you come down? We had that for a couple of years. We didn't know what are we going to do with this? You know, it's so evocative and it's so it's sad, but it's beautiful. Like you said, and his singing in that tone is it's hypnotizing, but it's just a little bit. Whenever we say the gods of music have given us this great gift, by all means, now we try not to fuck it up and we'll do everything we can to make this thing live in the world. And I think we kept messing with it. Didn't really work, but a lot of things that we would do would go into other bits of the songs. And I knew that we were looking for, like you said, this one song that would let you know everything about all these songs. It's going to open the door to all these other songs and you'll get it. I was building two characters, I think, in the very beginning. And I would be Flower Gun because I'm like a, a hippie in one way, but I'm like a gangster in another. And Stephen would be Flower Head, but his flowers are all because of he's at too many funerals in his life. So we're So I'm a flower child who carries around a gun because I'm a drug dealer. And Stephen is a flower child because he's carrying flowers to his mother's funeral. But that's just a that's just a moment to say, well, okay, I you know, for me, I could set that up and be like, what happens to these characters now? And then I don't really know. Then I'm just singing. You know, I'm just hoping to sing something that sounds like I know what I'm talking about, but it's really nothing at the same time. And so, you know, I knew that we were singing about our dead brothers and sisters, but also friends. You know, I knew that was because we'd already had most of the songs by then. I think that was almost the last song that we did. Mm -hmm. I knew that Stephen knew what I was singing about. I knew that Dave Fribben knew, and I knew everybody around us knew what we were singing about. And that gives you a little bit of a confidence to be so vague, but everybody in the room knows what you're saying. And then just being so lucky that it works and all these things that were just accidents really sound amazing because we would have changed a lot of it, if at the time it didn't hit us or whatever. And that is part of the dilemma. You never know when it's really magic. You always think, well, I could make it better. I could change it. We could make it faster or we could make it shorter or something, you know? So yeah, I, but I agree with you. There's just something that I still walk away hearing that song. It's just got these magic bits about it. And I don't think it's any one human's doing. It feels like one of these songs that the world wants someone to sing and so we said well we'll we'll try it (laughs) (laughs) you and me sound we think i've got all i need with you as my girl feels like i'm ruling the world you and me with that kingdom before us Feels like we're living in the magic forest With you as my girl Feels like king of the
Yeah, Danny and Grace got it all figured out. He's dealing coke while she works at the slaughterhouse. You gotta live what you do. Got blood in my shoe. Driving to work as the sun's coming up. Wish it was a spaceship coming for us to take us away in some royal parade. You and me selling weed. Um, even though American Head has a, a nostalgic element to it, it's it's not about like looking through the past in rose tinted glasses, is it? I mean, at least for much of it, it's actually not. It's some some of it almost feels like cautionary tales. Like, don't do this with you. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> um, it has a tone for me of one kind of idea of the American dream, which is kind of like almost like a broken idea. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me of like Gus Van Sant films, like My Own Private Idaho. This is a huge section of like society in America in the interior and the heartlands. Yes, stories just don't get heard. And I feel that this comes through in your stories. And it's interesting because like everyone thinks like no matter how many interviews you do. And of course, in the early days, you used to take it on the nose and just say, yes, we do do drugs. But, but, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but also it's like you've said now that, you know, and actually you've tried some and drug taking is not really what floats your boat <laughs> for most of the time. I think you also said in an interview that when your wife, Kay Weaver, takes acid yeah. and she would see all the good in the world and you would see the death and decay. Well, yeah. And really, Stephen and I are the same way. I mean, I think that I, there's an idea of what taking drugs, you know, left over from the 60s or 70s or whatever, where people are supposed to be very glad that they've lost their minds and that they can't think straight or whatever. But, you know, for me, that just never worked. I didn't like being out of control. And I didn't I didn't like when I would see my older brothers and their friends being crazy or being mean or mad or any of these things, you know. So it just didn't work for me. I tried taking LSD. It just scared me. I just thought I was going in, insane. Now, there would be moments, you know, there would be these funny moments where I could, if I could get my, you know, my state of mind to be just more optimistic, I could see where, oh, I think I could turn this around. But in all the situations that I was in, I I feel like I was always the responsible person, even though I'm a lot of times I'd be a lot younger than everybody. I mean, I remember seeing the Rolling Stones in Dallas is about a three and a half hour drive. We all drove down in a, in a car full of people. Now, the Rolling Stones always start late. So everything is going to go late, late, late. So by the time we leave Dallas to drive back home to Oklahoma City, it's like three o'clock in the morning and everybody is tired and I have to drive home. OK, so even though I'm like the youngest one in the car, I drive everybody home because really I don't want one of these other guys to drive because they're going to kill us, you know. And so they all go to sleep while I drive us home from seeing the Rolling Stones in like 1981. So in a sense, I think I just always put myself in that role of like, hey, you know, no matter what happens, if the house catches on fire, I'm going to be able to get us out. If the police show up, I'll be able to get us out of trouble. And I never liked being on the other side of that. And so I think that's just part of my personality. I remember even going to see Led Zeppelin and 
everybody, I mean, it was wonderful in some ways, but ridiculous in others. I mean, we, we waited in line in a very cold January winter. Back in the day, you had to wait outside. You know, we waited outside for five days to get front row tickets. But I did. I ended up getting like 25 tickets for all of my, my brothers and all their friends. And we all sat literally in the front first row to see Led Zeppelin, the only time they ever played here in Oklahoma City. But everybody at the show was completely zonked out on like quaaludes. And no one even knew when to clap and when to do anything. I mean, it was just a complete mayhem. And Led Zeppelin, for me, you know, I was watching them play. I wanted to hear how they got their sounds and all these things. And it really disappointed me. I didn't like it at all. I even left early. But I was wrong. Everybody else was going just to have a great, great time. And all these things didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were in tune. It didn't matter if they played the right notes. They were in a room with Led Zeppelin, and that was all that mattered. And so I think I just couldn't let go of that when I was younger. And so now I realize that, hey, there's a time to be, you know, to be responsible, and there's a time to not worry about it so much. But I think that those those things that we sing about, I think they're the only situations I feel like where this music is the only way we can talk about it. Otherwise, it is kind of silly. The things that we're talking about with our brothers doing drugs and even when I was selling marijuana and all that, if I talk about it without this music, it does sound like a crazy celebration of the 60s and 70s and we're all high and isn't it wonderful? But I think the music sets it up to be like, what we're singing about is something that's it's kind of sad and it's fucked up. There's some regret about us playing into it and us being damaged by it. And I think that's why we like it, because it's the only way we can really communicate what it means to us is because we're doing it with this music. Otherwise, I just don't think Stephen and I would feel comfortable even talking about it because it does. It just sounds like a bunch of weirdos taking drugs. Isn't it mm -hmm. great? You know, even glamorizing the idea that people die of drug overdoses or get put in jail, you know, all that becomes glamorous in someone's eyes. But to us, you know, when we sing about it this way with these types of instruments, these types of chord changes, this type of longing, it really does express that part of it for us. But I also think, you know, it's doing that to the listener as well. The listener doesn't have to have the same experience as us to know the same feeling. These types of songs can do that. They're singing about a longing. They're singing about a regret. They're singing about, like you said, there's some innocence that's lost that I still think is with us. When your innocence is lost, it's not like a moment and then you're just on the other side. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like you're always in this in between where why couldn't it have stayed simple and perfect and, and happy? And why does it have to be regretful and painful and damaging? But that's reality, you know, and that's I think that's why it's so wonderful. I think that's why music, in a sense, is like the only thing that can really speak to that. It really is. It's like a story, but it's abstract. Music like this, it's your life, and it's not just my life, even though it can be very specifically my life. It's magic, and it's time travel, and it's, mm. it's, it's feeling something. It's wonderful. I mean, I think we all are drawn to that type of music. It's like simple. It's slightly dramatic, but it's almost like a song that you feel like, even though you've never heard it, you feel like you've heard it as it's rolling along, like, oh, I kind of... I know how this is going to feel. And that's, 
to me, that's the hardest type of music to do because it's easy to fall into something that you have already heard. And you want it to have this element of surprise, but also familiar. You want it to be comforting, but you also want it to be new at the same time. It's a, it's a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flaming Lips know that as a teenager, Wayne experienced a robbery at gunpoint when he worked at the local Long John Silvers. It's interesting how you go back and revisit the story, you know, with what in you, you and Stephen were doing with this album. When that happened, did it change anything about how you were living your life? And did it change your sort of trajectory, even as like wanting to become a musician, perhaps? It's like when you asked me, like having a, a child, having a baby, does that change you? I, you know, at the time, you don't know it changes you. I think that's the only way it can change you. This is when I'm 16. I can't quite remember, you know, because there isn't anything set that says it was exactly this date. There must be some police report or something I'll be able to dig up. I think I, you know, when I say I want to be a musician, I think I just want to be a rock star. You know, I don't even know what being a musician is. I just know the Beatles and I know Led Zeppelin and we're starting to even see what punk rock is. All these people were just rock stars. We didn't really know what music and recording was. But also I was working a lot with my brothers and with my father. And that bond of being with my my brothers and their friends and my father and us all working together, you know, that's a that's a, such a you don't you can't even be aware of how wonderful that is you're just so in your element with your pecking order and your family and all that sort of stuff but i knew that i wanted to do i didn't well, i didn't know i just was like i want to do music i don't really want to do what my father's doing but i didn't reject it in that way you know and they were all very encouraging but i still felt as though i was kind of part of me was leaving them which I never wanted to do. But by not working with them and not wanting to do what they did every day, I part of me felt like I'm leaving them. Why would I do this? But, you know, this robbery happened. Mm -hmm. And I really did. I was, when you know, when I say, mother, please don't be sad, I'm really speaking to her from when I was on the floor, mm -hmm. thinking, well, I know I'm going to die. 
And I wish I could tell her this. And, and he, you know, even when I told her about being robbed later, you know, since I didn't die and no one, nothing happened, you know, she was like, oh, Wayne, well, I'm so, I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, just, you know, it's not like, oh my gosh, you know, because I'm, I'm just so glad to be alive that I, I can't even tell the story with very much drama in it. But I know when you're 16 and 17 years old, there's just so many petty insecurities you have about everything. Mm. And I was insecure about doing art. I was insecure about doing music. I was insecure about who I was. All these things for a brief six or seven months just disappeared. I remember thinking like the things I worried about, this thing happened. And it's only a couple of minutes, you know, before we're robbed that night, it's just a normal night. And literally two minutes later, everything about you is changed. I remember thinking like, why was I worried about these stupid things? Why would I worry about that? And I know that my father didn't care that I didn't want to do what he was doing. He wanted me to do music. And I knew my brothers didn't care. They would be glad I would be doing music. So that little thing, mm. I think, left me. And I, I, I always felt like I'm still with them. I'm just not working with them. Writing your own music and writing your own lyrics and painting pictures and all that, you know, Part of it is kind of embarrassing because if people come and see your painting, oh, that's stupid. Why'd you do that? And when you're, you know, you feel like, I don't know, I guess I'm stupid. Or they hear your song and say, why? Mm. I hate your song. So for a little while, none of that mattered to me. I didn't care what anybody thought. It's like, I'm just going to do this because I literally died on the floor. You know, mm. I, would, I don't, I'm not really worried about what some dumb hippie thinks of my music compared to that. I think eventually all those things kind of, you know, they kind of come back or whatever. But for a little while there, I, I was relieved and I probably did come across like a very confident mm. Superman. It's like, I'm going to do this music. And people be like, oh, well, wow, you really are. And I'd be like, well, fuck it. I don't, you know, but so it's probably some something in there mm. changed, even though mm. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it, it so much. I think it showed in, in people that are around, they were kind of like, well, he's, he's just doing this thing. He doesn't seem to be to be worried about it. So, yeah, I, I think it mm. did. And now I, I think I was just very, very lucky that this thing happened to me at this time in my life and that it did, it sort of gave me another life. I mean, now, you know, since I've had our little boy, you know, I kind of say to people often, like, this is my third life. And I try to always just stay aware of that, how wonderful it is to still be evolving and still finding out things about yourself. I just get to stay alive and learning things and figuring things out and, and observing. Did you ever want kids before? Because, I mean, you were in a relationship before for longer than most people have careers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people around you were having kids and you just didn't feel the need for it, like music was enough? No, I mean, I think I was I was thinking whatever happened, I would be okay with it. And when I was with my previous wife, we didn't have an agenda. And I just thought, well, you know, if you want to, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with it. When Katie and I got together, I mean, she, I think she had a, a clear, like, here's what we're going to do, you know, and by the time I get to be 28, 29, we're going to, and I was like, okay, cool, you know. So I don't think I was ever really against it. I think I was just like, you know, I, I'll just go with the flow. But I would say, you know, I think I'm the luckiest person in the world to have this happen to me now because I'm sure I would have been a, too intense and too serious about doing art and doing music. And then now I, I'm just not like that at all. But I, I'm not a young guy that's trying to make sure 
I do music for my whole life. I've already done music my whole life, and I'll probably be able to do music for the rest of my life. But when I was younger, I, I'm sure I would have, mm. I would have worried about that a lot more, and I would have worried about making money and paying for insurance. You know, all the all the things that you do. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I was open to it, but relieved that it didn't happen then. But very, very grateful that it happened now. And I, and we'll probably have a couple more if if everything works out. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. I, I don't think we'll have five or six. Maybe three or four. Yeah. I wonder if it's just like an extension for you living in a state like Oklahoma, which is kind of not in the proverbial cities, that you've always said like you wanted to live this bigger, more interesting life as you were maybe sort of coming up and writing. And it's come through in your songs in all this like most interesting ways. You've made your your life interesting through these songs. And, you know, you're always talking about spaceships and other beings and bigger things than us. But at what point did you sort of think, hey, my life is interesting? Well, I, I and I, I totally agree with you. You know, it is, it's like put yourself into your own epic adventure story. You're the star of it. I'm trying to remember the, the guy who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland. I forget, I forget. Lewis Carroll? Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll was writing a note, and at the at the end of it, he says, Lewis Carroll from Christchurch. To me, it was kind of in this order. I thought, Lewis Carroll is from Christchurch. Santa Claus is from the North Pole. The Beatles are from Liverpool. And I don't know any of those places. Why can't the Flaming Lips be from Oklahoma City? And that be just as if any of those people would have said it in, in that order, they would have thought, where the fuck is that? Or how cool is that? Or no wonder you're the way you are. The same way I did about Lewis Carroll being from Christchurch. And that, you know, you have to come from somewhere. I think for us in the beginning, it didn't matter, but it always mattered to the audience. I mean, our very first review that we got, I remember Michael and I, Michael's sitting here with me. I, I remember us both reading it and you know, we were we were getting ready to play in, in Minneapolis, which to us was a great, cool music place. We're going to Minneapolis where the replacements and Husker Du and all these mm-hmm. cool bands were from. Yeah. And the guy wrote about us playing there, but they said, you know, you're never going to believe it. But these guys are from Oklahoma. Like, you got to go see them because who comes from Oklahoma and does this kind of music? And then I think as we would go along, I mean, Oklahoma really made us something. Being from here made us more unique. It made us different. It made us feel more authentic. All these things that we would have never seen in ourselves. So I think in that way, I was glad to not struggle with it anymore. You know, I mean, in in the early days, we couldn't have moved to Los Angeles um, and we couldn't have moved to New York and we couldn't have moved to Athens or one of these hip places anyway. But luckily, we were always playing and always touring around. We would play New York and L.A. And we were absolutely glad we didn't live there. We were glad to go home to our weird little house with our backyards and our dogs. I think by the time it got to where if we wanted to do that, we could. By then, it just didn't occur to us that we would want to live anywhere else. We liked that we lived here. I mean, you had, uh, do you realize as a state song for Oklahoma for, well, for a while until the Republicans took over? Yeah. Those are the sorts of things you could never, ever 
predict that that could happen. The governor at the time, they were opening up a historical museum and him and a couple of the legislator guys, they made a point like, it's got to be someone who's alive right now. We got to put them in while they're alive. And they loved our music and they picked us. And then this thing happens. And all those things, they do change you and they do shape you and they do make you look at things differently. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, so I think there was a point where we felt like, you know, we're driving this ship. We're making our image of who we are. We're in control of this. And then at some point, we'd just be like, no, we're not. It's (laughs) things happen and we're making music and (laughs) great things happen. Bad things happen. And we're just part of it now. And I think that was a great relief to us to know that it's like you don't really get to make who you are. Yeah. I'm going to give you a last question. Super thankful to get to this point. Um, (laughs) What does it mean for you to still be making music with Stephen and Dave Fridman and the rest of your band, like 21 albums in? I mean, was there any point where things just got too dark or or too hard that you might have thought to yourself, I don't want to do this anymore, you know? And what does it mean that people still listen to your music? Well, right. I think when you're younger, all those things would have been very difficult to have too many decisions. Like I said earlier, having just enough success that you could say, man, this worked good, but it didn't utterly change us and it didn't change who we were to each other. I think all that, we were just very lucky. And I think there is something probably underlying in my personality that this big family, and I, Stephen's from a big family. And so I think we, we attract people who like that. And so I think even, I wouldn't have known that about Dave Fridman or even Michael, but there's an element of like this family. And so it's, you know, there's something deeper about it than just, I want to be a rock star. I want to make music and music gets that. You know, I think music is just such a magical thing in that way. You don't really know what it's saying. So you're blurting out these parts of your personality. It's not like painting a picture or or even writing a story or a poem or something, because music is so abstract. You're not quite sure what you're saying, but it is communicating something very deep about you. So I think as we would go, that would get communicated, even though I wouldn't really know it, you know, and I think that would attract people and and people would see something in us. That would even come down to even me being able to know someone like my wife, Katie. Now she's hearing things in our music without even knowing me to be like, I really like you. And even though I don't even know you, I just, and those are the things that are in your music that you can't be aware of. I think little by little, I just would be more aware that, you know, how lucky I am, that it just gets to keep going. And with art and music, you know, you do want, you know, you want to keep working on it. You know, you don't want it to be chaos. You don't want it to be a moment. And you really have to work with people that know you absolutely through and through because it's just too intense, you know, and you have to trust each other and you have to take risks together the longer I work with Stephen, the more we understand each other, the more we help each other, the more we love each other. We're lucky that it keeps going as opposed to being tortured by it. And the idea that people still listen to our music, I mean, that does completely blow our minds. That put out an album like American Head, people are like, like even you talking about those songs. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, and that's the other life of music and songs. It's like, you know, you put it out in the world and you forget that that's, that's a big part of the coloring. That's a big part of what it starts to mean is what it means to other people. And, you know, and you can't get too caught up in it because if nobody likes it and everybody thinks it's horrible, you don't want to get too hurt by it, you know. <laughs> but I think us more than probably any other band that I know of, people have absolutely 
always come to our rescue. And I think that's when you do music like this that doesn't hold back and is willing to say things, those people will come to your rescue because like they're saying things. You don't fucking know what they're saying. Fuck you. They're doing something cool. You know, that really sticks with you when people really believe in you. Yeah. And I think mostly just just sheer, sheer dumb luck. <laughs> yeah, Buddha's cool. And you're not to Wayne Coyne from The Flaming Lips. You've been listening to Under the Radar Podcast. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfin. Additional editing was provided by Azane Samari and Chris Greenspawn, with marketing by Jenny Woodard. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, I'll leave you with Wayne's words. Stay safe and uh, be careful out there in the world.